Romans chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 29. Uh, So far in uh, Romans, in Romans chapter 2 in particular, Paul has been deflating the sources of Jewish pride. He's already undermined any person who would think that possessing or hearing the Torah or the law of Moses would exempt him or her from God's judgment. And at the end of the passage from Romans 2, 17 through 29, he takes things even farther. Uh, He does so by first discussing a few various advantages that the Jewish people might have, but he ends climactically by looking at uh, their pride in a certain sign from God, the sign of circumcision. I've been using an illustration to picture what's going on in Romans 2. Um, I've never used the visual before. Um, if you like it, it was me. No, if you don't, it wasn't me. Uh, so uh, use the illustration of a child boasting in two balloons, thinking that these two balloons made him special or unique or different than any other child in the world. And uh, for the Jewish person, the two things they were boasting in that Romans 2 talks about is the law, God's law, and God's sign of circumcision uh, that makes them unique or different. Have you ever been around someone who was proud of his or her ethnic heritage? I experienced a bit of this when I had a cross-cultural experience with uh, Australia. One of my professors... Name is Michael Bird. Uh, Mike is genuinely funny. Uh, He is short, redheaded, sarcastic, and he has an amazing accent. So even when he's trying not to be funny, I start laughing. Mike demonstrated his ethnic pride to the class one day. He is originally from Brisbane, and I think he was doing this in jest, not quite certain, but Throughout the course of the day, he continually argued with both me and American and the other students, the Australians, about how much better Brisbane was than either of our countries. Their sense of humor was better, their work ethic was better, their national pride is better, their food, everything is better in Brisbane. His clinching argument was they have a real sport in Brisbane called Rugby Union, America only has football. Australia only has an inferior form of rugby. Again, I'm pretty sure Mike was joking when he did this. But sometimes people inflate their own nation's pride and values and demonstrate blind nationalistic arrogance. Although this is not what the sermon is going to be on today, uh, We should be careful not to boast in American pride, but to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ, him crucified. Okay, that's an entirely different sermon we can do sometime. But Paul starts in verse 17 by examining various privileges that the Jewish person might claim for himself. He continues his dialogue between himself and an imagined, normal Jewish person. You remember uh, Romans 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man. And then in verse 17, he says, You call yourself a Jew, an imagined, normal Jewish person. And so Paul begins in this first paragraph with the person's self-perception in verses 17 through 20. 
before looking at his condemnation. So look at, let's look at his self-perception, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of truth. We'll stop there. Here, Paul believes that the average Jew of his day might boast in any one of nine perceived advantages. If you have the handout, uh, there's some bullet points for you to kind of track along here. Nine perceived advantages. First perceived advantage uh, for this person is he calls himself a Jew. This is not a derogative or an anti-Semitic way for Paul to refer to this man. Exactly the opposite is true. God has a special plan for the Jewish people, the people of Israel, and both Jesus and Paul, who wrote this letter, uh, loved them dearly, um, being Jews themselves. But this imagined person delights to identify himself with his special name. He gladly identifies himself with this name because it speaks of the, the great religious heritage that he has. You call yourself a Jewish person. He moves along and says, you also rely on the law. Now the word rely that's here in the text, this verb is only found here in the New Testament. It likely means that he rests on or leans on something. And in other literature outside of scripture, it's used of someone leaning on something physically or metaphorically. And so the Jewish person that Paul's arguing with here depends on or trusts in the law of Moses as a guarantee of his privilege. He relies on the law. The third perceived advantage for them is your boast is God. He boasts in God. He feels that he has a unique relationship with God. This expression of boasting in God, I think, has a negative connotation. And it's used of his unique privilege to boast in his relationship with God. Those from other nations could not boast in Yahweh. Only this Jewish person could. The fourth perceived advantage is you know God's will. Literally, you know the will. An absolute use of the word will, which was a customary Jewish way to describe God's will. It was the will. One well-known book in the Apocrypha explains this about the Jews. It says, happy are we, Israel, because we know what is pleasing to God. They know God's will. The next advantage is you approve what is excellent. This man perceives that he approves what is excellent. He's confident that he knows the best course of action in every situation because God's law is his instruction. You approve the excellent things. Then he says you are sure. He is confident. This man is confident As he compares himself to the Gentiles, he's sure of four things. You say, well, there are nine advantages. How in the world can you fit them all in here? Well, the rest of them are under you are sure. What are they sure of? Look in the text. You are sure that you are a guide to blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of fools, and a teacher of children. And we'll handle all of these together. There's similarities here. 
It's the Gentiles who are the blind, those in darkness, fools, and immature. They are the children. The Jewish man here is the guide, the light, the instructor, and the teacher. Okay, and all of this is true from his perspective because he has the embodiment of God's knowledge and truth. He has the complete and perfect expression of God's knowledge and truth found in the law of Moses. Okay, and so according to Paul, this is how a typical Jewish person would perceive himself or herself. But we know this to be true, right? We know perception is not always the way things are, right? This man might puff his chest out thinking he's exempt from God's judgment. That's his perception. But what we're going to now look at is his condemnation. Right, We're going to look at how things really are, and we're going to see once again that his behavior is off. And men and women, this imagined Jewish opponent is not the only person who can be deceived. We as well can be comfortable with who we are, yet remain under the wrath of God. I'm going to talk more about that. As we go along. But after describing these perceived privileges, Paul moves along to condemnation, verses 21 through 24. There's a large gap between what this man thinks about himself and how things actually are. So Paul's going to condemn him with five questions and then pronounce a final authoritative Word of condemnation from the scripture. Okay, so let's look at the five questions, the condemning questions. First of all, verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You, you, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Okay, now, I want to stop and I want to consider those five questions for a moment. Now, what's interesting about those questions is each one of them follows the same form in the original. There are five questions. They all go the same way. They all start with two words that are translated, you, who. Okay, I'm going to be careful not to say those too closely together, you, who. Uh, But (laughs) you, who, all right. And then the second part where it transitions into the question all have the words, do you, do you. And uh, along these lines, I think the last one, verse 23, should actually be a question. It's a question that Paul will, he will answer with verse 24 and the scripture uh, that is there. Okay, so uh, about these five questions then, I just have two things I want to say. First, the idea of robbing temples that he describes at the end of verse 22 is mysterious, isn't it? I mean, in our modern context and setting, we're trying to figure out, what what does he mean? You you who hate idols, do you rob temples? Right? And and we struggle to know exactly what that means. Well, because it's so unclear to us, this has led many commentators to suggest all kinds of approaches. Right? And I'm going to save you the pain of considering 
all of those. I think I've got like seven or eight. And I'm going to give you the two that I think are most likely. What does robbing temples mean? Well, robbing temples might refer to uh, diaspora Jews or scattered Jews who neglected to send in their yearly temple tax. Okay, so according to Exodus 30 and verse 13, the Jews are required to pay a tax for the temple of half a shekel in accordance with an annual temple tax. Let me just read that portion. You could write down the reference. It's Exodus 30, verse 13. It says, Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this a half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Okay, so when Paul says, you who hate idolatry, do you rob temples? He might be poking at the Jews who said they hated idolatry in any form, but failed to support the true worship in the temple. Okay, one possibility. But the other one that maybe is even a little bit better is robbing temples might also refer to Jews who plundered pagan temples and then profited from them By using the metals and the precious treasures for their own wealth. That practice was also condemned by the law. I'll read you Deuteronomy 7 verse 25. You could write that down, look it up sometime, but let me read it. Deuteronomy 7 25 says, The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them and take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it because it is an abomination to the Lord your God. So the Jewish man here says he hates idolatry, but he's drawn to pagan temples in order to loot and plunder them and add it to his own wealth. That's likely what Paul means when he says robbing temples. The rest of the questions I find pretty straightforward. You who talk about uh, not committing adultery, do you commit adultery? And he's he's suggesting, by the way, he frames the question that they actually are committers of adultery. And that's how all these questions go. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? Answer, yes. But... Secondly, Paul's direct, Paul directly answers the final question. Okay, so if you're looking at the questions again, let me back up one slide here if I can. If you're looking at this final question, you who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And we would know the answer to that is yes, but the next verse gives us his direct answer uh, from Scripture. So look at verse 24. It says, For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Here, Paul's accusation against this Jewish man has scriptural warrant. So in verse 24 here, he quotes from Isaiah 52, verse 14. He quotes from a passage in his Old Testament scripture where the people of Israel are suffering under the oppression of Assyrian and Babylonian exile far away from their land. And the prophet Isaiah explains to them that the source of their oppression is not Babylon, it's not Assyria. The source of their oppression is their transgression of the law. 
The name of God is blaspheme among those foreign nations because of you, the prophet Isaiah says. Because of you, that generation. And so Paul is using that text to point out how the transgressions of the Jewish people have led Gentiles to mock the name of God. I want to get into just, I'm going to take one minute to just give you a little private theory of mine about this part of the passage. Okay, we'll find out in heaven if it's right. If I'm wrong, you come right up to me and point my face. Say, you, you were wrong. This is my theory. Paul might have some very specific acts of disobedience in mind that brought disrepute to God because of the disobedience of the Jews. It is a matter of fact, historically, that All Jews were deported from the city of Rome in the year 49 AD. Seven years before Paul writes Romans. Things were so bad in the city of Rome, a Roman emperor by the name of Claudius decided to get rid of all Jewish people. Now most historians and and, uh, scholars think that it was because of their constant bickering and arguing about whether Jesus was the Messiah. They're arguing about a man named Crestus is the original uh, uh, description of this. Okay, So most people say, well, the Jews weren't getting along because they're fighting with Jewish Christians about whether Jesus is the Messiah. But there's another ancient writer who points to riots that were occurring between the Jewish people at the climax of Jewish fights against Christians. So Jewish stealing and looting and rioting, maybe robbing of temples, might have been other scandalous reasons that Claudius deports all Jews from Rome just seven years before Paul writes this book. That may be the explanation for the Gentiles, Roman citizens, are blaspheming The name of God. They're mocking the name of your God. Because you're stealing, committing adultery, robbing temples. Now regardless, Paul is saying that Gentiles blaspheme God's name because of the wickedness of the Jewish people. That's no question there. Jewish people think that they're something. They have a special name, a special book, knowledge, special discernment, and a special light. But they steal and cheat and rob, dishonoring God's name among the Gentiles. And for Paul, that is a significant problem. You remember Romans 1 and the whole reason we're here is for the sake of God's name. Because of their behavior, God's name was being blasphemed. There was a huge gap between their perception and reality. They were boasting in various Jewish things. Now, uh, in the second half, the next paragraph, we look at verses 25 through 29. There's one other source of Jewish pride. Paul's already popped the balloon of Jewish law, of God's law, and now he destroys their false confidence in God's sign. The Jewish people had a mark in their flesh that declared to everyone else around them That they were God's people. It was the special sign of circumcision. What I'd like to do is to walk through this text and look at it in three parts. I think these are the three parts that uh, the text easily unfolds to. And the key to this section is to identify how a different group of people 
relate to the physical sign of circumcision. Okay, and so if you're taking notes, uh, we start with verse 25, the Jews and circumcision. And uh, Paul sets up really two equations. Uh, I don't know if you like math or not, but I'm going to make a math problem out of this for you. It's very simple. Okay? It's like one plus one is two. Okay, um, So first scenario with the Jewish man is this. Um, Paul says in the first part of that verse, circumcision plus Jewish obedience equals value. Okay, so look at uh, verse 25 with me. For circumcision is in, uh, indeed is of value if you obey the law. So when a Jewish man obeys the law of Moses, then his circumcision is indeed of value. Now, he doesn't tell us how much value it has. But that it retains value for a Jewish man as long as he's obeying the law. All right? The second uh, part, uh, second part of the equation is the last half of the verse. Look there. It says, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So circumcision, that sign, plus Jewish disobedience equals uncircumcision. Okay, so when a Jewish man disobeys the law, then his circumcision becomes uncircumcision, metaphorically. This, is an, uh, uh, this would be a way for Paul to say that transgressing the law has the effect of invalidating one's circumcision. A Jewish man who transgresses the law becomes just like the Gentile pagans. The Gentile pagans. So that's... The Jew and circumcision, verse 25. He then moves along to Gentiles and circumcision, verses 26 and 27. Um, Look at verse 26. So if a man who's uncircumcised, Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Um, things get a little bit harder here, right, in verses 26 and 27. Paul begins by suggesting that a Gentile might keep the precepts of the law. Uh, but this leads us to some questions that you have to consider to understand these verses. And, uh, and actually, even the next few verses are even harder. So focus. Focus here for a few minutes. What does it mean when Paul says... Uh, talks about a Gentile obeying the precepts of the law. And who is this Gentile? Those are hard questions for us to consider, but I'm, I'm glad that Paul's consistent vocabulary in Romans can help us. Let me invite you to turn to one passage. Turn over to Romans 8. And I want to look at verses 3 and 4. Romans 8, 3 and 4. So we're asking, like, who is this Gentile? And How is he obeying the precepts of the law? We look at Romans chapter 8 and we we find verse 3. It says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, 
but according to the Spirit. That phrase, the righteous requirement of the law, is the same phrase in Romans 2 regarding the precepts of the law. The precepts of the law. So going back to Romans 2, you could translate that, the righteous requirement requirements of the law. So it seems that Paul is speaking of many Gentiles who will be converted through the gospel of Jesus Christ to live lives that conform to the righteous requirement of the law, the moral requirements that the law always intended, and they will do this through the enablement of the Holy Spirit of God. Because again, we're back in verses 26 and 27. You're working hard here, but who is the Gentile and how is he obeying the righteous requirements of the law? I think, I think Paul's talking about Gentile believers who are enabled to do this to fulfill what the law was always pointing toward by the enablement of God's Spirit. And that's how in verse 27 he says these sort of Gentiles will rise in opposition, well, rise in rise to condemn the Jewish person who has the written law, the law inscribed, the law of Moses, and disobeys it. Okay, and so that's Gentiles and circumcision. And it leads to one last group of people. You say, well, who's left? You know, you got Jew and Gentile. Isn't it like the whole world? Yes. Okay, but uh, he goes in an interesting direction here in verses 28 and 29 when he describes the true Jew and internal circumcision. So look with me at verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In these final verses, Paul considers what truly makes a Jewish person. And he makes his point in both a negative and a positive way. Verse 28, negatively, he's he's saying, Outward marks don't make anyone a true Jew. Outward circumcision also doesn't accomplish this, as you're reading in verse 28. Instead, internal obedience and internal circumcision of the heart by the Spirit of God is necessary. Okay, that's a brief summary, but let's think about verses 28 and 29 and answer two questions as we close about this. The first question we need to deal with is, what is a circumcised heart? This idea of having a a heart that's circumcised is not a new idea for Paul. He got this from his Old Testament scripture. It starts back in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy and in various other places. The Old Testament writers talked about the need to have a heart circumcised when one follows God. Again, you could write down two references, Leviticus 26.41, I'll read that for you. Leviticus 26.41, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, 
then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. In this passage, uh, it concerns Israel who sin and then come back to the Lord. In their sinful condition, they've got an uncircumcised heart. But if they will, the text says, humble themselves and make amends for their sins, God will remember his covenant. One other text is Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. In this text, Moses appeals to the Jewish people to metaphorically cleanse their hearts. He says this, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. All right, so if I'm using those texts to understand what a circumcised heart is, this is how I would describe it. Uh, a circumcised heart was a heart that turned from its iniquity, was no longer stubborn, but was clean. All right, that's the first question we've got to answer from Scripture. What is a circumcised heart? Okay, but then uh, our final question is, how does someone get a circumcised heart in Scripture? And this is where Romans, since you stayed there, answers it. If you're looking in your text in verses 28 and 29... How does this come to a person? The text says it comes by the Spirit and not the letter. Letter, I think, is a way of referring to the law as a written code. But the Spirit would be the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the agent. This kind of clean heart that he's describing comes not through the letters of the law of Moses, the written law. (coughs) Instead, the Holy Spirit metaphorically cuts our heart to produce a heart that brings the approval or praise from God. In other words, it's only the Spirit who can change a heart like this to make it clean. This reminds me of a parallel passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Paul says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Now listen, he says, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not by the letter, but by the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit does what? Gives life. You see, men and women, changing hearts is the new covenant work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers in Jesus Christ. Changing hearts is the new covenant work of the Holy Spirit in our lives To make us clean and give us clean hearts. And so we ask again at this point, having worked through the text, why would Paul say this when he's addressing the Jewish situation? In writing regarding the Jews, Paul says that true Jewishness depends on what God sees about our heart and not something about any sort of external mark. Here Paul deflates Jewish presumption and pride in the ceremonial sign of circumcision. 
It will not deliver them. Because God only approves those who have clean hearts. And men and women, can I say this? That is what God is still looking for today. God is not looking for external things. Something that you've done. Your good works will not impress God or bring about his reward or grace. Your baptism will not exempt you from the judgment of God. Something that you think uh, that you do uh, that makes you different will not work either. You might boast in your family's heritage. You might boast in the fact of your own morality and compare yourself to other men and women. But what you need to know is if we disobey the law in one point, we are guilty of it all. And what you also need to know is that the heart is deceitful above all things. So this author of scripture says, it's deceitful above everything else. I want you to know the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, he continues. Who can know it? You see, God will be looking for a clean heart. And the only way one gets a clean heart is through God's son, Jesus Christ. As I close, consider one final section of Romans. Romans 10, 5 and 6. I'm sorry, 9 and 10. It says, For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses. And is saved. Do you have a clean heart? Have you believed in your heart. In the son of God. So that you would be justified. Or saved. Let's pray together. Lord I thank you. For your scripture. It strikes me Lord today. That there are some here likely. That might be like this imaginary Jewish opponent who boasted in things. He felt that having the law was enough to get him justification. He felt that the physical sign of circumcision would exempt him from God's judgment as well. But there there may be some here today who have false securities They think they understand everything. They think they know themselves. They think they know their spiritual privileges. They think they know their performance. They they feel comfortable when they compare themselves to other people. But God, would you show them through your spirit that those are all false assurances. They'd be like this Jewish man who stands condemned. But Lord, would you help them also to believe in their heart that God has raised his son, Jesus, from the dead. Would you enable them to believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory, we pray. And for those of us who know Jesus as our Savior, Lord, we pray that 
that we as well would remember to boast in Christ. As we sing our final song together, might we all know that all I have truly is Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.